right, here we go, episode 32. Welcome in, everybody. My name is Josh, and today I have no energy, none. So maybe this podcast will lack enthusiasm, perhaps. But I promise it will not lack that quality content that keeps you coming back week after week after week. You know who else lacks energy? All of the DJs on 91.1 KCSM Jazz. For those stressful commutes when you just need to unwind a little bit, decompress, that's when you put on 91.1, the jazz. But I actually think the DJ's voices are more relaxing than the actual jazz. Seriously, when they get on the mic, after about 10, 15 minutes of some nice Bill Evans or Oscar Peterson, maybe a little Miles Davis, they keep the velvet, dulcet tones going. They actually retain that old school radio sound. Like it's just them picking the songs, just them speaking extemporaneously about whatever the hell they want. Maybe their weekend, maybe the weather, but it just sounds so natural. And they don't need to bring that fake radio energy. Hey, 12 minutes past the hour, we're going to get ready for the big concert series coming up this Wednesday. No, the jazz DJs, they talk to you in a way that lets your shoulders drop a little bit. That was the incomparable Wayman Tisdale on the bass guitar, who released his number one album in 1992. Wayman Tisdale, also a force in the paint with the Sacramento Kings. Coming up, a little more Josh Redman as we get you ready for the Ron Miles experience tonight, right here on 91.1 Smooth. So fucking smooth. They should just let jazz DJs swear. Hey, as I'm pouring another couple of fingers of Glenlivet in the studio tonight, just want you to know that I probably shouldn't drive my vehicle across the Bay Bridge out to the East Bay as I am now a hazard on the roads. That was Oscar Peterson coming up. Diana Crawl takes you the rest of the way on KCSM Smooth Motherfucking Jazz. I have a question. Let me just ask this question, and if you know the answer, you go ahead and tweet at me or email me. Why does every Hollywood movie that takes place in medieval times have the actors doing the same exact accent? Doesn't matter where it is on the globe. Doesn't matter where it is geographically, what region it is. All Hollywood actors who are ever doing a period piece in medieval times, ancient times, the Middle Ages... They all feel the need to sound the same. Have you noticed this? Could be an old war movie in Italy, Spain, Britain, France. Doesn't matter. The Hollywood actors feel the need to use this stupid accent that's so unresearched, but we've all just accepted that, yeah, that's how medieval people sounded. You've heard it. Think about all these movies you've seen. Gladiator, Braveheart, Spartacus, Ben-Hur. Anybody who watches Game of Thrones, even though I don't, I assume it's all the same. Father says the children shall respect their elders. You've heard this? We were in the field all day playing a game of Legionnaire. I don't know what accent this is. It's the laziest shit you ever see. Hollywood actors, when they get cast in a movie about medieval times, old war movies, it's the same accent. I spent a fortnight in the castle with my love, 
as we waited for the dark clouds to pass. The horses are going to have a brutal winter. Mother says the horses will die. And Hollywood always says no horses were injured in the filming of this movie. Have you noticed that? If you stay for the closing credits, they always have to tell you that. No horses were injured in the filming of this movie. Yeah, they were. I watched the horses as you put them in the armor and they had fake soldiers on their backs. You remember when they fell and they all collided and just fell? Did you ask the horses? Hey, how you feeling? The answer's probably, oh, not great. I'm pretty injured. Yeah, that last scene we were shooting uh, did not feel great. When you guys had me fall into a puddle of my own fake blood. Yeah, didn't love that. Didn't love that. Pretty sure my knee is shattered. But if Hollywood tells us at the end of the movie, no horses were injured, we go, oh, that's good. Because that scene where 70 horses collided and fell down a mountainside in Braveheart, it looked like there were some injuries. And when everybody spoke in this accent throughout the entire movie, doesn't matter what part of Europe we were in, it just matters that we speak this way. In the meadow today, I was greeted by a deer. I ended up carving him out and slaughtering that deer and bringing venison into the village. Okay, I'm not sure anybody's ever done that, but you know what I mean. It's the same bullshit Hollywood trick. Oh, that sounds like old times. I think they're nailing the accent. You'll now notice this in every medieval war movie you ever watch, and it will now bother you. And the horses who are truly being injured, and you know they're being injured, that might bother you too. But I did catch a movie that was heartwarming and that was well done and i did watch a movie that matters and that movie is called won't you be my neighbor the mr rogers documentary which is mandatory viewing if you grew up with mr rogers fred rogers out of pittsburgh pennsylvania it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood dee dee bee dee lee dee dee would you be mine could you be mine won't you be my neighbor pbs the greatest children's show ever. That's not hyperbole. What else would even be in the discussion? Don't go howdy duty on me. But the truth is most children's shows are probably a little violent or there's too much stimulation or a bunch of clowns running around pies and faces. That's what Mr. Rogers said. He was compelled to use the medium of TV to create a global community, a countrywide community, and use it for good, not evil, to show children that he cared and they are cared about and they are valued. And it was as sweet as a movie could be. Really well done documentary. Won't you be my neighbor? Here's a few things that stood out for me. He attempted a show for adults, I don't remember that, called Old Friends, New Friends. And then I guess the producers were like, nope, all right, Fred, go back to the set. He was a pioneer. I actually don't have enough compliments for Fred Rogers. He was never creepy, never weird. There's no negatives. How nice is that? Nowadays, when we just see a bunch of celebrities go downhill, down a dark path of crime, Fred Rogers died, I believe, what, 2003, 2004? And there was never a scandal. Nothing. Thank God. Thank God. But his impact was beyond belief. If you think about all the many kids and all the many U.S. cities that tuned in and learned about how crayons are made, maybe learned about how to deal with sad things, too. It's not like he just stayed on all the positive topics. He taught death and divorce, 
They even showed footage of him dealing with the Bobby Kennedy assassination through Daniel the Puppet and Lady Aberlin. Was that her name? I forget, but she was on the show forever. When you're watching the documentary, you just go, oh yeah, I forgot that. Oh yeah, I forgot that. I forgot that too. It's you I like when he sings to the kid in the wheelchair. That is a lump in the throat moment. When he fights for the right to fund public access television in Congress, that is a monumental scene as well. I don't want to blow every scene for you, but it's not really a spoiler. You've probably seen all of this. Anyways, but here's what stood out. Nowadays, TV moves so quickly. We all know that. Bells and whistles and filters and special effects and everything is just so fast. His show was slow. Slow. And they focused on that, how he didn't fear silence. And that was my biggest takeaway, is that I've now filled my life with so much, just in terms of radio, podcasts, TV, phone conversations, text messages, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, that there is not really a lot of time where I'm just comfortable in silence, which is terrible because silence is wonderful. It's when you reflect. It's when you have those introspective moments. And they showed Fred Rogers. You know, he'd enter the set. He'd immediately take off his coat, put on a cardigan, change his shoes. It's a very slow way to start a TV show. You know, just an outfit change as he welcomes you in. And they even showed, Fred Rogers showed everybody what a minute is. A minute of silence. It's not that long. But if I just stopped talking on this podcast for a minute, to me it would probably feel like a long time. And to you, you would probably lose interest and just turn it off. But watching a man who's just not in a rush, yet fully engaging, fully entertaining, that was inspiring for me to just get comfortable with more silences. I need to. Natural silences, not just meditation. Meditation is good, but it truly is the act of setting aside time to focus on your breathing and become mindful in the moment. I'd like to just do that naturally at times. I should plan to go on a dog walk without a podcast. That's my goal. One a week. And you know for a fact I'm not going to follow that. God, am I a hypocrite? Because you know I want to. I want to so badly embrace the silences, but shit, there's so many good podcasts out there. All right. Obviously, I'm having an internal conflict right here. But, uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, my mom is from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and she actually took my sister onto the set to meet Fred Rogers and the puppets. And we have some great family photos. Those are actually probably the greatest family photos we have. Let's just say our family photos are a tad limited in the old happiness department. Was that an overshare? But the photos, I'm not even in them. This is before Josh, BJ. Seeing my mom with Fred Rogers and my sister in the puppets, those are like the most famous family photos we have. And it's true. It happened. It all happened. The Pittsburgh roots, it all came together. I don't actually know the story of how it came together. Now I know, know I need to find out. Gotta find out. All right, is your heart warmed by that... Mr. Rogers documentary recap, you got to see it. It's now streaming for $5.99 on Xfinity. And I need to get rid of Xfinity because it's too expensive. So what do you do if you step away from the TV? What do you do? Well, you learn to love to read. Or if you know you love to read, you got to emphasize putting aside some time, opening up that book, not falling asleep into the book. 
actually trying to get through it. I recently checked out, that's right, checked out, no longer buying. I'm a library guy. I'm a library guy. Uh, Louis Anderson's book. It was like under staff picks, you know, like the old school video rental stores, staff picks or the great Seinfeld episode where Elaine fell in love with the little kid, but didn't know it was a little kid because she just loved his picks about movies. Great episode. Well, staff picks at the Corte Madera Library. I saw Louis Anderson wrote a book about his mom called Hey Mom, just writing letters to her. And she died years ago, so he's writing letters, almost catching her up on what his life has become and some of his realizations about the Anderson family from Minnesota. I don't even know Louis Anderson's comedy. I know he's a comedian. I've never seen it. If I think of Louis Anderson, I just think of his cameo in Coming to America. He works at McDowell's. No, not McDonald's. He's one of the cashiers at McDowell's, and they slam his tray of drinks. It's probably my favorite scene in Coming to America. Speaking of Coming to America, that's rated R, and my parents took me. I was kind of young to go to a rated R movie. There was a full-on boob scene. There was a lot of profanity. I mean, this was Eddie Murphy in his heyday, and I could not have been more than 10 years old watching this rated R movie. In my opinion, his best ever Who's going to dispute that? Coming to America was amazing. But Louis Anderson has a tiny role in that movie. And aside from that, I actually can't remember when I've seen him. Actually, I did see him on a show called Splash, which was like an NBC primetime show of celebrities diving into a giant pool. (laughs) Sounds like I dreamt this. Didn't you see Splash where Louis Anderson was diving off a board? It's a sentimental book. It's a funny book. He's a really good writer. I don't even know why I started it, but it was good enough to continue. And one thing stood out to me about this. So we talk about drugs, substance abuse, addiction, and it's easy to understand one of the options of quit cold turkey and avoid it, right? But Louis Anderson said, look, I'm morbidly obese. My drug is clearly food. And some people do agree that food is a drug, can be a drug, addicted, To processed foods and sugars, of course, it can change your brain chemistry. It could provide immediate gratification. You know, a bite into a good old-fashioned Whopper at Burger King could change your mood momentarily. It can make you forget about all the stress and sorrow. And Louis Anderson is describing this, but he made a point that I thought was interesting. He said, if it's alcohol and you're an alcoholic, then don't go to the bar anymore. Don't buy alcohol for your house. Avoid parties or events where they're serving alcohol. Of course, all of this is easier said than done, but at least his logic is well-received. If you're a coke addict, avoid cocaine. If you're a meth head, avoid, avoid. He said, but food, if food is your drug, you can't avoid. It's always going to be a part of your life. So it's a struggle every single day, the survival if you're a food addict, and not just a food addict, but a bad food addict. He's addicted to the worst foods out there. It's how he heals his emotional pain. I never thought of it that way because you can't just tell somebody like that, go on a diet. The act of putting food in his mouth is not satisfying unless it is bad for you. That's got to be a struggle. And I know healthy people would say, no, you could do healthy cookies. You could do healthy cakes. You could do healthy burritos. You could do healthy pizza, healthy vegan pizza. But deep down, I think we would all dispute that and say, nah, it's not as good as the shitty food. If food is your drug, it's tough to say 
yeah, I'll just do the healthy version of that cookie. I'll do the healthy ice cream. No, you know what you like. You know what's going to fill your needs, give you that fix. But aside from that, he turns a lot of his suffering into stand-up. And that's what he said. That's why I'm a stand-up. I wanted to beat people to the punch. Of course, I was going to be made fun of and bullied, so I decided to be the first person to point out all of the things about me. So he was self-deprecating to a point that he became a celebrity. His comedy apparently works. I'm inspired to see if he's funny. I know he's in Vegas, right? He's one of those big Vegas acts. When you're in Vegas, go to the buffet and see Louis Anderson at the buffet and on stage. Have you noticed? How's that for a transition? Have you noticed that when you're in the market for something, when you know that you're saving up to buy something or it's time for a new car, new pair of shoes, new skis, not sure I'll ever own skis, new vacuum, you know, the big purchases, something bigger than something you would just get at the grocery store. But when you're in the market for something, isn't it weird how much you notice those things just around you in society? Like right now, officially, we are house hunting, still going to open houses, having the disappointing results, of course. You kidding me? But because we're in the market, I now notice everything about homes in the neighborhood I grew up in. Now I notice the siding. I notice the frame, the door, square footage. I notice the landscaping in front, the rocks, the lawn. I notice the trees. I notice the window, single pane, double pane. What are we talking about here? Vinyl siding. Is it wood? Is it stucco? All these things. Is it mid-century modern? On a busy road, not a busy road. I'm obsessed with noticing homes. And of course, we're always surrounded with homes. But before I was in the market, I never cared to really notice, really examine homes. Now I look at where's the chimney located. Okay. How about the driveway? Too steep? Is the house on a hill? Because the only way to go house hunting is to look for perfection. We love that word. Oh, it has to be the perfect fit. Perfectly comfortable for my tastes. What I need and the amount of times I go on Zillow and Redfin per day should be illegal. It's an obsession to the point where I need to take a few days and realize that, look, the website doesn't reload that quickly. Anything that you're reloading and refreshing every five minutes rarely changes. But there's still that little part of you, that tiny percent that's like, yeah, let's give it a whirl. Refresh. Refresh. And then you start to look at pictures of a home you've seen seven times and you go, maybe you try to rationalize things that you know you hate. Maybe we could turn the garage into, well, it's only 800 square feet for a million dollars and it's only one and a half rooms and three bathrooms. Who the hell's the architect with that? Or if you're in the market for a car and you know you want a specific SUV, you start to see all of those on the road. It's all you notice when you drive. You don't notice the sky. You don't notice any sounds anymore. The birds... You don't notice the homes, you just notice the cars. And if the right car is on the road with you, boom, you have that eagle eye focus. Shoes. If you're thinking, you know what, I finally need some good running shoes, you start to notice everybody's shoes. You start to really examine laces, comfort. You ask people questions. It's weird. And it's all mental because all of this stuff is always in front of us. Cars, people's shoes, homes. But whatever you're thinking about buying in the near future, boom, you just zero in on it. That's my sound effect. If you're thinking about buying a dog, you start to notice all the people walking their dogs and you go, hey, what breed walks well? Not mine, folks. I like the way beagles look, but I would never recommend this breed. 
And if anybody out there listening has a beagle or knows a beagle, then you damn well know what I'm talking about. All right, it's time for me to talk about something that truly matters. And that is Sasha Baron Cohen. A couple of weeks ago, I was told that I get a free Showtime sample. Three days, I get Showtime for free just to take a look. And I get it. It's a great marketing ploy. Hey, you give them a little taste of Showtime, they can't get enough of Ray Donovan. Or they can't get enough of, what are some other Showtime shows? Weeds, Californication. I don't even know any of their shows, to be honest. I'm on Team HBO for life. But this is where the new Sasha Baron Cohen show is. Who is America? And about 18 years ago, I think he was doing the Ali G show, where he was fairly unknown. And he had the characters Bruno, Borat. Those became movies. He became very well-known, very successful. Big hits at the box office. And that was HBO. So now, fast forward. He's doing the same exact thing, where he's in disguise. He's incognito. He pretends to be a journalist, doing a show and different characters. And he's still duping people. I kind of liked the Ali G show. It was pretty good. But this one's not. And I gave it a very small sample size, if you're watching it, because it makes headlines. Sasha Baron Cohen embarrasses a congressman, an old white man who doesn't have a clue that he's being had, that he's being fooled in the moment. I don't understand why this is still fun to watch. Maybe I'm the old guy who doesn't really understand this form of comedy, but it's too obvious. What does he think he's going to expose? So he has all these characters. One of them's a redneck, a southern redneck. One of them is an Israeli soldier. One of them is just like a meek white guy from the suburbs. And he interviews people and he says exactly what they probably don't want to hear. And they don't pick up on it. He just upsets them. Who's agreeing to do interviews without knowing the source? Like Ted Koppel. He actually interviews Ted Koppel in that redneck character. The country redneck Republican and obviously, he's frustrating Ted Koppel the whole time. Why is Ted Koppel doing that interview? Ted Koppel is a really big name, a legendary TV interviewer and anchor. How's Ted Koppel not doing any research on this guy to realize he's not a guy? He's a character. How's anybody still being fooled by Sasha Baron Cohen? He's too famous for that. It's amazing that each episode is filled, filled to the gills with a bunch of people feeling irritated. If anybody asked to interview me, I would Google whatever their publication was. And if I couldn't find it, I'd say, yeah, I'm good. No, this is clearly just you. I guess he could tell them it's for Showtime. It's a news show for Showtime. But there's no shock value. If he interviews somebody and he's trying to expose them as a homophobe or a racist, I think we already know there are homophobes and racists. Who's shocked? Who's watching this show, Who is America, saying, oh my God, I can't believe there's homophobic people and Sasha Baron Cohen got them to say it on camera. There's too much access. We see this all over the place all day long. You want to see racists being exposed? Get on social media any day, every day. And if this show's supposed to be comedy, it's just too much cringeworthy moments. The interaction's not that funny. I mean, there's probably an audience that still loves it. They go, oh, this person doesn't know it's Sasha in makeup with a wig. This does not get old. Yeah, it does. It's old. It doesn't work. It's time to retire this. 
I don't know what's weirder, the people who agree to do it or the fact that Sasha Baron Cohen still thinks he's exposing things. We know there are some dumb, ignorant people throughout the country. Thanks for shining a light on that. Thanks for really letting us know that exists in America. So no, I won't be going with Showtime, folks. Oh no. And now that Hard Knocks is done, I'm pretty sure I don't need HBO. Hard Knocks was good, though. I mean, as always, it has nothing to do with the team. They just find any storyline that looks dramatic enough to get them through the preseason. But the way HBO films training camp, it makes it look so exciting. And it's not. I remember being at Chargers training camp for like 30 straight days. Those practices are dull. I know fans come and they enjoy seeing their players that they love, but training camp practices are really boring until HBO gets there with the slow motion and Lev Schreiber's voice. That afternoon, Mayfield will lead the quarterbacks into the Winnebago, where they will discuss the future of the Browns organization. Head coach Hugh Jackson has had a tough week, and all of these storylines are so great because they're so well narrated and filmed and the score and the music. And I know I've talked about this before, but I could watch Hard Knocks for hours. It's one of those shows that's just so well done. It will make the Cleveland fucking Browns the most exciting thing during the preseason. And then the season starts and you're like, oh, oh yeah, that's, that's still the Browns. Even though they did tie on opening day. There's your sports minute. The Browns tied. Now you're up to date if you're not a sports fan. Now you know the Browns have not lost a game this season. All right, lastly, if you love Bourdain, I realize why. He's a teacher. Personally, I learn more from Bourdain than anybody on TV. And I just read his book. I'll now read another. He's a teacher. I know he could be viewed as a journalist, as a party animal, as a chef. Can't forget that. But when he goes to Singapore, that's the most recent episode I watched. I don't know anything about Singapore outside of the caning story. You remember that caning story from the 90s. But Singapore is fascinating. And of course, he turns food into a story, into the culture. And like I said, the way HBO films boring hard knocks, he'll film soup being made. Not him, but CNN will and make it look very exciting, very artsy. So it's well done. But it goes beyond that. I think Bourdain is so unique. He's one of a kind. And now there's so many people that try to do that style of food journalism, food shows. None of them are good. Netflix, stop. Hulu, stop. Anything on the cooking channel, just stop. It's not Bourdain. It's not even close. I feel like, oddly, as a teacher, I'm more of a student than I've ever been. Maybe that's what teachers have to be. Lifelong learners. We got to be the biggest students and then present ourselves as teachers to the students. But when I watch Bourdain, I'm a student. I am learning about the world. I know I'll probably never make it to Singapore. And I watch him go to Myanmar. I'll probably never get there either. But at least it seems unbiased and it seems like he's just telling us a little bit of history, a little bit about the cuisine, a little bit about the social scene, a little bit about the politics. And in a 40-minute show, I know that's not a lot of time, I kind of feel like I have a grasp on Singapore. Maybe that's my bad for thinking that it's such a thorough presentation of a country. But if you watch, you kind of understand what I mean. Ah, but this, this is where you might have to clench your jaw. You might get the lump in the throat as I'm watching. And I'm watching all these, obviously, so far after they came out. But it said the lost episodes, the final episodes of Bourdain are coming up in late September. So there's still more. 
He had filmed some episodes, and there are still more to come. And the way CNN does the promos, the commercials for these upcoming shows, holy shit, get ready to cry. Grab the Kleenex. Or what do you call it, tissues? Should we do this game? Where we think about all the many things we call by their brand names instead of the actual names, like chapstick is lip balm, Q-tips are cotton swabs, band-aids are adhesive bandages. Should I just do this for 20 minutes because I like this? Rollerblades... Rollerblade is a brand. They're actually called inline skates. Should I keep going? Should I keep going? Glue stick. I think that's a brand. Highlighter. Isn't that a brand as well? The things we call by their brand name when really there's another name for them. All right. That is a solid area to end this podcast because now I got you thinking. Or maybe not. But at least it seems like I got through a bunch of stuff. A bunch of shit. Too much swearing on this podcast? Yeah? If so, go back to one of the early episodes when I talk about the history of profanity. It's just a man-made creation. Let's not give words too much power. I love words, and I hate to say it, but I do love swearing. Can't allow it in the classroom. I know some teachers that do, though. I'm kind of impressed by that. Can't allow it in the classroom, but the fact that we all swear, maybe in the future, five, ten years from now, there's going to be a lot more profanity in the classroom. Just more young teachers... Or older teachers, experienced teachers who are just like, you know what? If this is a form of self-expression, let's do that. Let's let these kids feel comfortable. Let's make learning fun. (laughs) All right, you can follow me on Twitter if you want it, jrosenberg957. If you do tune in and you like this stuff, leave a review on iTunes as well. I guess our book club is now Louie Anderson. Hey, Mom. I think the title is Stories About My Mom, but you can read them too. And then he wrote a story about his dad, his struggles about being the son of an alcoholic. So all of this sounds pretty interesting. You didn't think I would end on Louis Anderson, did you? He did a hell of a dive too. Hell of a dive. Or maybe I dreamt that. I can't tell if that's real or not. But either way, that's episode 32. It's in the books. I'll talk to you soon.